The book of Nahum, three chapters. We're continuing our series uh, through the Minor Prophets. We've titled our series The Book of the Twelve. And uh, we're just going one by one, one message per prophet. And this week we land on the book of Nahum. Uh, We're just going to read the the first few verses of chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, where it says this. An oracle concerning Nineveh. That's what this is about. he's, He's prophesying against Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold In the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. Now we just look at the last verse of chapter 1 in verse 15, where it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now the, the, the name... Nahum means compassion. And if you, if you took time to read through the entire book and, and, and even get into chapter 2 and chapter 3, you might, you know, at the end of that, you might kind of think, man, Nahum's name means compassion. Uh, it seems like this book is far from a compassionate book. Where there being so much anger, and I mean, even the first few words of this, God is jealous and avenging. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes, in case you're not getting the point, the Lord is going to take vengeance on his enemies. And you're thinking, where's the compassion in all of that? We'll get to that. But we need to point out something that should have been pretty, pretty glaring to us when we, when we found out what, what this oracle is about. Remember, Nahum is an oracle of destruction and judgment against Nineveh. Nineveh representing the entire Assyrian Empire. Now remember, just a couple weeks ago, we were in the book of Jonah. And what happened when Jonah went to Nineveh? What did we read there? We read that there was great revival, that the people of Nineveh turned to God and repented, and God spared judgment on the Ninevites. What happened? Well, the book of Jonah probably took place about 100 years before Nahum is writing. And, I mean, I guess it's pretty obvious what happened The very last verse of the book, in chapter 3, verse 19, kind of tells us what happens. Where he says, there is no easing your hurt, talking about Nineveh, the Assyrians. He says, your wound is grievous, all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. And here it is, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. 
So that in the generations between when Jonah went to Nineveh and when Nahum is now giving this oracle against Nineveh, apparently those generations, they, they rose up and they took over the prior wickedness and even ramped it up. It's interesting to, to know that only two books in the Old Testament end with a question. One of them is the book of Jonah, when he's facing Nineveh, and the other question is right here concerning Nineveh, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil, and then the book kind of ends. And I don't just give you that as an interesting fact. I think God is really wanting us to stop and consider our own hearts and our own lives in the face of these Ninevites. God wants to bring reflection to us. Because, and here's, and, uh, here's, here's, what, uh, here's what kind of, maybe something I've known, but something that maybe just clicked a little bit more to me as I was studying this. I actually was able to meet my, out at camp, my old uh, college roommate, Ryan Saucer. Uh, he and I were roommates in, in college at Faith Baptist Bible College, and I got to catch up with him uh, a couple times and chat over things. And in our conversation, him and I, him and I are kind of, kind of both landed at a, a similar conclusion about God's word, kind of at the same time. He talked about how he's leading the youth group through Exodus, and he's going through the plagues. And he said he realized that the Exodus and, and, and all these plagues on Egypt, it wasn't just a judgment story. It was a rescue story. And that is the exact same thing, that is the exact same thought I had as I was reading through Nahum. When I stopped to realize, yes, this is judgment against the Ninevites, but this isn't just a judgment story. It's a rescue story. Which is why we have verses in, in chapter 1 that say oh, he, that, that the Lord is good. He's a stronghold. He's a refuge in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And then later where it says, behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news. Well, what's the good news in this book? the judgment of God. It's that God is going to rescue his people. All throughout the Bible, Exodus, it's not just a judgment story, it's a rescue story. The flood, where God floods the entire world, it's not just a judgment story, it's a rescue story. The cross of Jesus Christ, it's not just a judgment story, it's a rescue story. And all throughout the Bible, what we have, and of course when we look at the cross, Jesus himself is the rescuer, who's both being judged so that he can rescue those who believe in him. But the Bible is a rescue story. And yes, that includes judgment on God's enemies. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. We've already talked about that. And God would use the Assyrians, in 722 BC, God would use the Assyrians to punish the people of Israel for their sin. But they wouldn't have the final say. Now you might be thinking, what about us? I mean, the Ninevites, Nineveh, it's no longer around. There's some ruins of Nineveh over by the Tigris River in Mosul, Iraq, modern-day Mosul, Iraq, but what's this have to do with us? I want you to think through a storyline with me, and it's the storyline of the Bible. At the end of the prophets, these minor prophets, when we eventually make it through, at the end of those minor prophets, until Jesus arrives on the scene, is a, distance, uh, is a time of about 400 years And during those 400 years, God is completely silent. No prophets, no angels, no signs from heaven, nothing. He's silent. 
And also during those 400 years, you know, Israel eventually comes out of the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile and gets released uh, through Cyrus of the Persian. They eventually get taken over by the Greeks. But when Jesus arrives, remember, they're under the Roman rule. The Romans are, are, uh, are, are oppressing and ruling over them. And so at the end of those 400 years when Jesus comes, Israel is waiting on a divine warrior. They're pleading, they're just waiting, where is God's divine warrior that will come and rescue us from these heathen Romans? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this guy, this weirdo, by the name of John the Baptist, starts walking around and saying, the Messiah is here. And then he says, he's here, and his name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And so he's going around, he says, you need to repent and believe the gospel, the Messiah is here, the Christ is here, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist is wandering around, and he's like, hey, the divine warrior is here. What happens when Jesus shows up? He starts healing people and casting out demons. John the Baptist would eventually get arrested because he told one of the rulers that he shouldn't be sleeping with anybody else other than his wife. And he's in prison, and he's going to die. And John the Baptist starts thinking, was I right on this? And so he sends a message to Jesus. He says, hey, Jesus, um, I've kind of spent my whole life proclaiming that you're the divine warrior everybody's been waiting for. And, uh, and I'm in prison, and the Romans are still here, and we're not delivered yet. Like, are you, are you the one? That's what he said. Are you the one we should be looking for? Do you remember what Jesus did in response? He healed more, like the disciples come to him and say, hey, John the Baptist sent us, he's kind of wondering what's going on. And Jesus heals more people and casts out more demons. And then he says, go back to John and tell him that the, the blind are receiving their sight, the lame are walking, those oppressed by demons are being delivered. What is Jesus saying to John? This divine warrior was telling John that he did not come to battle flesh and blood. But that the war that Jesus came to fight was far more intense than the Ninevites and the Assyrians could ever be. Than the Romans or the Greeks or the Babylonians could ever be. Jesus came to fight a spiritual war. And if you're wondering, well, what, is, what do the Ninevites have to do with us? It's this thing exactly, is that we don't battle flesh and blood. When Jesus came, he said, hey, we're here to battle a spiritual enemy. The warfare was actually cranked up. We learned that from Ephesians 4, Colossians 2. Our war is not against people. And Jesus came to empower us to do spiritual warfare. And to tell us that God fights for his people. Now the problem is we don't like that idea a whole lot. I mean, practically speaking. We don't like the idea of spiritual warfare. We'd rather be against flesh and blood, don't we? I mean, because spiritual warfare is a battle to keep our sinful flesh, right? It's a battle to keep my own sinful flesh from believing Satan's lies and indulging the world's luxuries. And I'd rather fight people. I'd rather fix people. I'd rather call out people. I'd rather, I'd, rather, I'd rather, you know, think my biggest problem is the boss or money problems or that my spouse isn't doing this for me or the kids at school aren't doing this for me or my parents won't give me this or this person's causing problems and this and this and this and I think the, the battle's out there and Jesus says, no, the battle is a spiritual battle. And so we come to the book of Nahum 
we see a God for all of the ages. We see a God for all of the ages that though we're not fighting the Ninevites, we're fighting something much greater and much more powerful than the Ninevites could ever have been. And I want you to know this morning that God will save his people. And number one, as we kind of jump into the passage here, number one, the first thing, God will save his people despite the enemy's power. That's chapter one. Or you can even say, despite the enemy's power over you, because that's kind of what the Ninevites were. Now notice what the, notice what the Ninevites are up against. Notice what the enemy's up against in, chap, in chapter 1, verse 2. The, God, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. He is a jealous God. What does that mean? God is jealous. That means that God demands ex- exclusivity. Exclusive loyalty belongs to God. And often in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, God describes the relationship with him and his people as a marriage. There is an exclusivity in marriage that does not allow for anything else to come in. As a matter of fact, jealousy in marriage is not only tolerated, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of necessary. And it's encouraged. That if you're married, that you would be jealous that any other man or woman that would come in to try to break that bond and that strand of marriage, there ought to be jealousy. Because that is an exclusive relationship. And God is rightfully jealous. There's kind of two sides here. God is rightfully jealous when his people, remember the the Israelites aren't like innocent here. Because they're actually going after other gods. And God is rightfully jealous when his people begin to flirt with other lovers and go after other gods. More than that, the Ninevites who are going after God's people should know that God is jealous. That that enemy going after his people, they would not have the final say. And God will rightfully judge those who intrude on his relationship with his people. So God looks at both sides. He looks at his people, and he says, listen, Israel, church, Christian, he says, I am jealous. I am jealous when you go after other lovers. Way back in Hosea, remember, God says the same thing. And then he looks, and he looks at his people, and he says, I'm jealous. Why are you joining the enemy? Why would you join yourself to the enemy? And then he looks at the enemy and says, you will be judged for taking my bride. Satan will be judged for all the chaos that he has caused in a Christian's relationship with God. And the power of the enemy will be broken. Isn't that, isn't that the great, you know, in uh, Nahum chapter 1 verse 7, this was actually a life verse of a lady I did a funeral for at my previous ministry. And I wasn't very, I knew, knew the verse, but I wasn't very familiar with the book of Nahum, so I kind of thought, well... That's a really good verse, you know. The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So I was kind of thinking, I'll just formulate a funeral message just kind of off of the context of Nahum. Until I was prepping the funeral message. And I realized what Nahum was about. And I thought, hmm, funeral? Maybe not. Uh, Maybe we'll do it next time, you know, some other time. But yet, right in the middle of all this is that verse that God is good. In the context of all this stuff going on with the enemy. And he will not leave the enemy unpunished. And the power of the enemy is broken when we see who God is. And all, verse 2 through 5, all about who God is. He's great and he's good. 
God is a safe haven. He's a refuge. That's what people need. That's what people need. The Bible is saturated with verses, especially the Psalms, describing God as a refuge. Why is that? Why is that? Why is God described described as a stronghold and a refuge? It's for this reason. God knows that his people are going to go through hard times. And he knows that his people are going to battle the enemy. And if you're in here this morning and you say, man, I don't, I don't really feel the battle going on. I'm not, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't really feel the temptations. I don't feel the full weight of the enemy on you. Most likely, if you sit here saying, I really don't feel the temptations, the sin, it's, it's not the fact that the, the, the enemy's not coming after you. You're probably just sinning in attitude or thought or desire. If you don't feel the weight of the battle, it may be because you're losing the battle. And God is our refuge. And by judging his enemies, he rescues his people. And you should know a couple things about the jealousy of God. God will not abandon you to your enemies. God will not abandon you to Satan. It's not going to happen. He's not going to look at you and say, I think I'll, I'll let this one go. Not happening. He will not hand you over, forget about you, or lose track of you. But there's also something else you should know. Not only will he not abandon you to your enemies, but his jealousy means that he hates when you befriend the enemy. And he wants us to stop pursuing other lovers. Now the enemy here is seen as kind of this scheming sort of enemy. And look at verse 9 of chapter 1. He says, he says, with an overflowing flood in verse 8, he's going to make a complete end of the adversaries. Done forever. And then he says, what do you plot against the Lord? And I love this, I love this next couple phrases. He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. When God puts out the enemy, they're not coming back. And the enemy is, no, the, the word, what do you plot against the Lord? We have a plotting, a plotting, a scheming enemy trying to scheme a way to bring God's people down. And it's because if you bring God's people down, you kind of bring God down in a sense, at least in the eyes of other people. When the people fall, when God's people fall, God looks like a fool. Romans chapter 2, at the end of, the, at the end of, the, at the end of that chapter, where Paul says, hey, you religious people, acting like worldly people, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentile nations because of you. And that's what, that's what Satan wants. And that's what the Ninevites wanted. They were plotting, trying to figure out a way to defeat this God. And so they went after the people. And that's what Satan is doing to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 2.11, that's the phrase where Paul says, we're not ignorant of his devices or his schemes. Satan is scheming. He's, he's organizing He's plotting, he's planning, designing ways to get your flesh, my flesh, to love the world and leave Jesus. That's what he's doing. And listen, Satan has schemes for your marriage, specially designed for your marriage, specially designed for your work. He's got schemes specially designed for your loneliness, for your boredom. For those times of bitterness and anger, he's got special made, personally designed schemes for your time at school, for your free time, for everything, and for your time right now. 
and he's scheming. He's scheming. And he's got you figured out, and he's got me figured out even better perhaps than we have our own selves figured out. He's scheming, and then he's prowling. First Peter 5, remember that? Be, beware, be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The enemy wants to devour your faith. So he's prowling, he's on the lookout. I want you to notice what God says to them. He says, you're done. That's what God says to our enemies and his enemies. You're done. Trouble won't rise up again. The defeat will last forever. God will break you. The yoke of slavery will be gone. And this is, this, go back to the end of chapter 1. This is good news. Behold, upon the mountain, the feet of him who brings good news. It's good news. Now, when Nahum says, behold, it's almost like, hey, let me get your attention here. Like, listen up. And the people would, like, listen eagerly, like, okay, what's, it's almost like the word that says when someone comes back from the battlefield. And it's like, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the, the results. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you what happened. I'm going to give you the end. It's like, listen up. And the people wait for the final call. What's the final call going to be? I thought I would bring with, you, with me a gift for you. Uh, we have, I brought a video filmed by Pastor Matt from uh, camp this last week, senior high camp. I'm going to show it for you. It's just about a minute long. But it's, it happens on the last night of camp. And what you're going to see is um, the, the activities coordinator, he's, he's giving, the, giving the final, the final, the final uh, tally for the points to see which team won, you know, the week of competition. So it was life Guards versus the surfers. Yes, thank you. Uh, and so, so I'm going to show you a video of the anticipation of waiting for the final call. I think we can go ahead and roll that and Lord willing. Lord. All right, lifeguards, they won that game. So you just, this is Matt shooting. So any, if you get shots at the ceiling, that's not my fault. So they're cheering. And they're excited as they slowly piece out. That we won the verses. Lifeguards won the verse memorization. That's what they're all cheering about there. And everybody's just going crazy. Here's Mick. Uh, and then, turn it up just a little bit. Here, here's, where the, here's where the final score comes in. Drum roll, please. No, I'm kidding. Uh, just complete mayhem. The loudest thing I ever heard is they sat in anticipation. Who won? And that's what God's doing here. Who wins? Who comes out on top at the end of this? It's not the enemy. God will rescue his people despite the enemy's power. And secondly, despite the enemy's harm. Despite the enemy's harm. Because in fact, once you get into chapter 2, he starts talking about the destruction of Nineveh. We're in chat, we'll just read the first couple verses. He says, The scatterer has come up against you. 
Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Notice verse 2. He says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. You know, the enemy is well equipped. And God is restoring the majesty of Israel because that's what the enemy is after. The salvation that Israel received from God and the possession of the promised land was to lead them to shine forth the majesty of God. And the enemy, as we were just talking about, is well equipped to rob and steal and strip the majesty of God from God's people. But God says he will make it a glorious nation once again. And Christian, the enemy will not be able to hold one ounce of glory from you, from God's people. But in the meantime, Israel, Israel's sin opened the door for the enemy under God's sovereign direction to ransack their beauty. And this scheming, prowling devil is looking to ransack our souls. And the reason why oftentimes he's so successful is because Satan is tempting us and he's tempting us according to our own fleshly desires and our own sin. And he wants to ransack the glory and the majesty from your souls. And make no doubt about it, Christian, your sins, your selfish, lustful, bitter, Unforgiving thoughts and attitudes are ransacking your soul. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says, if these, he talks about all these qualities. He says, if they're in you and they're increasing, they keep you from being, here it is, ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to ransack your soul. And the soul-draining power of Satan is great, but the soul-reviving grace of God is greater. This, uh, this whole, you know, taking out the, the majesty um, reminded me of a, of a lady um, back uh, in at the, my previous ministry. Uh, she, was, she was into Wicca and paganism and pentagrams and just immersed in idolatry and uh, yeah, just, just entranced in kind of the supernatural world and, you know, haunted houses and all this stuff and and uh, her and I, she would, she would come into the church every now and then and, and just ask questions. And, and over several months, maybe in a couple of years, um, she would come to place her faith in Jesus. But it wasn't long after that. It was months, I mean, several months went by. And she, you, could, you could just see, I mean, she went in, she, she tore down her idols, threw them away, erased the pentagram, you know, got rid of all the, all the nasty stuff and, and all this, this stuff of idolatry. And you could, you could see it in her face, it just changed. Several months goes by, and she kind of begins to go off the radar. And after several months, I, 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 I hear from a, a friend of hers that, that she decided that Jesus wasn't what she really wanted. And so she jumped back into the paganism and the idolatry and all this stuff. And I share that story for this reason, though I can't describe it. The look on her face and... If I could say it, the utter hell that you could see in her eyes was far, 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 far worse than it was before she accepted Jesus. 
And it was as if you could see Satan himself. And, I, and when I tell you it went bad, it went bad. It was, I mean, it was gone. She was gone. And I don't know if, she, if she'll ever come to Christ again or anything like that. I'm not here to discuss all that, but she was gone. And you can see, it's it as if you could see Satan just drain whatever light she had. Where all that was left was pure darkness. It was as if I had a front row seat to see devil th- the devil throw up whatever light was in there. And that is what Satan is looking to do. Now if you're a Christian and you're born again, you can't lose your salvation. But make no doubt about it, he wants to take you and in your sin, and he wants to ransack the majesty of God from your soul. And he wants to drain your soul. And your sin will do that. And he's well equipped to strip the majesty. But God says, if you're truly mine, I'll restore it. I'll restore it. Because the enemy is destined for defeat. And that's kind of what the rest of chapter 2 is about. We're not going to read all that. But Nahum is preaching as if he was actually there. And the outcome of the battle was already settled. You know, when we know the outcome of things, we tend to relax a little bit. Uh, it's kind of like when the Avengers Endgame movie came out and, you know, there's like this big thing on all the social media, like, don't ruin Endgame, don't ruin Endgame. Like, don't tell people how it ends, you know, because the emotion and the experience of watching this for the first time is, you know, just, it's, it's, it's exhilarating and it's thrilling and they say, don't ruin it for people. But after you know the ending, you know, you watch it again and it's just, you know, you already know the ending. Maybe for those of you who uh, read books or you read mystery novels or something, you know, once you read the end, you go back and read through the book, it's, there might be a little bit of excitement there, but you already know the end. Well, that's kind of what God is doing. God is giving us a spoiler alert, if you will. And the reason why, it's to calm our fears, to settle our hearts, to help us relax and enjoy the grace of God. That's what it's meant to do. And that's what happens when God rescues people that's what happens to our souls when we have experienced the true forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We get to know the end. We don't have to worry about when, when it says God's judgment is coming. If you're in Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. You're not his enemy, so you don't have to worry about it. And that's what God wants to do. One day, this sinful flesh which pulled me in so many different directions... My own sinful flesh, one day that devil that deceived and prowled out after me relentlessly, day after day, hour after hour, this world that showed me that I need a different Savior other than Jesus Christ, one day they'll all be gone. And I'll be in heaven. And they will not have the final word. But until then, We must be aware of how hard and how fast we can fall. And maybe you're in here today and you you don't know Jesus as your Savior. You don't believe that he died for you and rose again. And that makes you God's enemy. Which means all these words that God has to say against the enemy, about how that it's going to be a complete end, trouble's not going to rise up a second time, there's going to be an overflowing flood and vengeance towards his enemies, that means that's, that's what's coming for you. Because of your sin. And we all have sinned. But God made a way for your sins to be forgiven. 
And God promises that you believe that Jesus died for you and he rose again for your sins. You trust him. That he'll forgive you and he'll make you a child of God and you will never experience the judgment that will come on his enemies. He's made a way of escape. Romans 5.8, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And that's turning to Jesus leads to repentance and faith. But I think this means a couple other things because I know the end. Just practically speaking, because I know how this ends, because I know the end of the story... I can do a lot of things. I can confess my sins to other people. Say, what does that have to do with it? I don't have to, I don't have to be afraid of what you think about me. Because I'm a sinner. I know that. And I know you're a sinner. And I know that confessing sin is just part of the way God sanctifies me until he completely sanctifies me in heaven. Because I know the future... And, or because I know who holds the future and who has fixed the triumph, I can rejoice and wave goodbye to fear. Because I know how this ends, I don't have to worry about making a great name for myself. Because on the last day, with millions and millions and millions and millions of people, Jesus is not going to say, hey, Zach Fisher, you know, get in front of all these people and really tell them how great you are. Or, hey, let me tell, you, let me tell everybody, hey, everybody gather around Zach Fisher, let me tell you how great he is. I do want to say, I was on the team that won at camp. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. Uh, it's not going to happen. Because I know how this ends, I can endure awkward conversations with my friends and my neighbors and tell them about Jesus. Because I know how this ends, I can surrender my life, my pastorate, my desires to do whatever Jesus wants me to do. Because I know how this ends and that the enemy will be ultimately defeated, I don't have to live a life of constantly shaming myself, hurting myself, or beating myself because of the harm that I've allowed the enemy to have in my life. Remember back in Joel where, where God says, I will restore to you the years that the locust has taken. God will save you despite the enemy's power, despite the enemy's harm, and number three, as we look at chapter three, despite the enemy's dominion. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse, chariot, all these things charging in. Verse 5 of chapter 3, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, Are you better than Thebes? That sat by the Nile, this, this, this town that was well fortified. Cush was her strength. Egypt, too, was without limit. All these things God's talking about. Their dominion, they're, they're ever, they're, they seem impregnable. That's the power of the enemy, the harm of the enemy, and the dominion of the enemy. The enemy isn't in charge. Even though the enemy claims victory. Because they got all, you know, they, they're better than thieves. Man, we've got, we've got all, this, all this defense and these walls around us. We, 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 won't, we won't be defeated. And Satan may say, I'm not going to be defeated. Which is why he tried to kill Jesus when he was first born. And then, uh, and then kill Jesus later on in life. On the cross. He thought that was his way of defeating God. Not knowing that that was the way to ultimate victory. 
The enemy has slain its thousands, but victory belongs to the Lord. I had a professor in college describe Satan as a dog on a leash. And right now, God is letting that little bulldog run around the garden, but one day God's going to take that leash and he's going to yank it. And Satan's dominion will be handed over to the Lord. He'll no longer have dominion over this world. He'll no longer be the God of this world. He says, I am against you. I am against you, verse 5. Notice what he says, I'm against you. Christian, he's not against you, Christian. He's against the enemy. God is never against those who redeem. If, you, if you're in here this morning and you think God is against you, you're wrong if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then you would be right. God is against you. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God is not against you. He's against his enemies, never against those who redeems. God is for you, and he has pledged his eternal energy, limitless energy, to making sure that you make it. You're going to make it. Christian, you're going to make it. God promised it. God is going to shame Nineveh. And several hundred years after this happened, God would shame the devil. That's Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and, and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. How? He forgave all of our trespasses. How did he do that? He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And that's what God says he's going to do in verse 5 to Nineveh. Where he says, I'm going to lift up your skirts over your face and make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. God is a God who shames his enemies. And Satan has been shamed. He's been disarmed. And the devil, our flesh, and the world no longer have to say. They no longer call the shots. We're forever free. Now we might need to apologize to some people along the way. We may need to confess some sins to God along the way. God says, my son Jesus took the record of debt that sinner owed when he hung on the cross. So Satan, you're through, you're done, you've been disarmed. Because that's, one of Satan's greatest enemies is to go to God and accuse you. He's the great accuser. Maybe, he, maybe he's accusing you right now because of something you did last night or last week or some words you had said or thoughts you had thought. And Satan goes to God and says, look at that follower of yours. He is, he is worthless. He is wicked. There's no way he could be yours. And Satan even says, listen, he's not yours. He's mine. He's following me. And if you're a Christian, God looks at Satan and says, you're looking at the wrong person. Because just over there on the cross, Jesus Christ, my son, took his sin. He bore the wrath for the sins you now accuse Zach Fisher of. Zach Fisher is innocent. Jesus, my son, was the guilty one. Satan, you're looking at the wrong person. And regardless of the enemy claiming victory, it's God who gets the victory. Look at the end of verse, uh, in, at the end of this chapter. Notice what he says there. Verse 19, all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. It's a funeral where everybody that goes to it claps and rejoices. When I get to the end, Christian, when you get to the end, you're going to say goodbye to the devil, to the world, and to your flesh. And praise God, you'll never have to deal with him again. But until then, it's warfare. It's spiritual warfare. 
And this should bring us hope. Because yes, we've got to battle, but we know who gets the victory. So Christian, have your affections pulled you away from God? What gives you consolation in this life? What really gives you consolation in this life? What consoles your heart? Is it the fact that God has written the end and God gets the victory? How is your relationship with God? Are you, are you his enemy? If you are God's enemy, then God is against you. Yet at the very same time, though nothing could be more serious than God being against you, he's holding out his hand to bring you into his family. And it's through faith in his son, Jesus. And if you are a Christian, do you know and do you rest each day knowing that God will never be against you? That's the great hope we have. We have a God for all the ages in the book of Nahum. God will rescue his people despite the enemy's power, despite the enemy's harm, and despite the enemy's dominion. Let's pray. Father, as we close now, we thank you for being the great and victorious God. I pray this morning that you would rescue those who don't know Jesus. Rescue them from your own wrath and from their sin. Lord, rescue followers of Jesus in here who are dealing out and piecing out their affections to other lovers. Rescue them from their fear, from the accusations that Satan and maybe their own hearts levels against them. Rescue us, God, each and every day of our lives as we rest in the great overpowering grace of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.